Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's something about this narrative arc that you've described of this conservative conventional illusion of wholeness w-h-o-l-e wholeness that is then disrupted by the monstrousness of a monster or of queerness or of transgressive sexuality Mm -hmm. in a lot of these stories which then in the traditional gothic literature has a narrative arc that ends with a return to wholeness, mm-hmm. a restoration, a redemption, a destruction of the monster or containment of the monster. Mm-hmm. And that you want to hang out in maybe the the whole the wholeness, the H O L E-ness. Like the the, the like everybody else is like catching the train, like like the redemption train. You're like, I'm just gonna hang out here in the yeah. fucking swamp, like see y'all. <laughs> When you come back around, yeah. I'll be in the looking catacombs. for ideas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I too like to uh, dwell there <laughs> in the darkness with other monsters. But it also makes me think about the narrative arc of BDSM. Mm-hmm. Now, BDSM doesn't when you negotiate a scene, you're not necessarily coming from a place of like well, this is something pure that we're then going to disrupt or get messy and then return to a state of purity. But there is a circular story of regular everyday consciousness, consent and negotiation, transgression into a place of erotic pain exchange or a power exchange or role play and like literally creating worlds and characters transgressing the boundaries of the body putting oneself through tests of endurance physical psychological emotional with with the understanding that at some point that the scene is going to end we are going to be restored to our like civilized selves that we are you know, not a principal and a schoolgirl anymore. We are two adults who have negotiated the scene and like have to go to work tomorrow. Right. And you talk a lot about BDSM in your book. And I, I, I would love to talk to you about like what makes BDSM different. And one thing that comes to mind is that there's not this, even though, even though BDSM always has the idea that like there is a container in which to explore darkness even monstrousness that we are going to return from there's not necessarily an assumption that we are going to like be restored to the way that we were before actually like a lot of the time the idea is 
transformation. Yeah. In terms of tests of endurance, you learn something about yourself that you didn't know before. That's right. Yeah. And so you come out of it as a, a different person with a new experience of the world. Uh, but one thing I will say about the boundedness of BDSM scenes is that uh, there's a power there in yeah. terms of if we think about insidious trauma as a ongoing low level accumulated traumas that happen on a daily basis that don't have a beginning or an end. Mm. BDSM plays with structures of power that are the traumatizing forces often in the world. Right. And, and constructs an end to them that's within right. the scene. And so that's a way to sort of negotiate, experience, re-experience, re reframe the problematic structures that are actually traumatizing in everyday life and that we don't have control over that right. we often feel that we yeah. are helpless in in the face of right and that all we see is that experience going on and on and on forever until we die yeah. <laughs> and that's really depressing yeah and exhausting and anxiety producing yeah. yeah and so bdsm has a special role mm. in um giving people the opportunity to play with that and control the temporality of it so mm. the way that I talk about BDSM a lot in the book has to do with time about te temporality mm. um, some people talk about the way BDSM can help you access the past mm. in in interesting ways like historic pasts like make new stories yeah, uh, yeah mm -hmm. from your own experiences yeah and from the experiences of your ancestors oh that yeah maybe you don't have access to multiple generations ago but you know that you are still um you have embodied those traumas that have happened to your ancestors in the past and so um by reconstructing scenes that are historic in nature mm. a lot of people say that you can like access the past in in really interesting ways and disrupt linear temporality this idea that once we're past the past we can't go back to it right and and doesn't that sound like haunting right when and so <laughs> also like time travel yeah like, time travel yeah, fucking yeah. octavia butler totally shit. yeah yeah um, and what I'm interested in is the way that a BDSM scene in its boundedness pauses the temporality of the outside world, right? Oh, right. So you, said so you said something about how it contains all possible futures. Mm -hmm. That's fucking rad. The emphasis is on that moment now. Yeah. And often on the deferral of pleasure, right? Right. And it's both very like mindful and in the moment, but also very hopeful about yeah. the future. Maybe the future pleasures that will come to you, or the future pains, um, or the future intimacy. Sure. Or the or the the future if you're like being if you're being tested so that you can have a role within, say, a leather family, or being tested. Yeah to see if you can have a role like are you worthy of being someone's boy are you worthy of being someone's daddy maybe you're being tested as a top yeah that you may gain an honorific mm -hmm. and all of your choices in that moment can lead to all of these future options so it makes that moment and your choices in it the most important thing in your world yeah and uh what's interesting about that if you sort of take it to a, a political orientation or an, a, a, an orientation in the world is that you know the idea that time is linear that we will just progress and move forward naturally without 
even having to try, mm. actually it can be really problematic. And it's part of a kind of the neoliberal uh, idea that I was talking about with True progress that, that, well, progress will happen inevitably, right? We just have to be on the right side of history and, and watch things get better as we move forward. Right. And that's, that, I think that's a cop out, right? We have yeah. to be aware that the future is contingent upon our choices right now and our choices right now are hyper important yeah and so uh, bdsm gives us that lesson that you know be in the moment be all consumed by the moment now but no whatever it takes sometimes that's what it it takes Mm. being like having your fucking ass beaten or it takes being suspended by rope to make you present yeah and not multitasking right (laughs) yeah okay so go on yeah it's like we can't just rest on the assumption that that change will happen that society will progress in a way that we imagine it will without us putting in the work and being aware that what we're doing now is is really important and that there are all sorts of futures that can happen fucking a that's amazing and beautiful i love it my God, I'm sort of blown away by it, to be honest. Can you talk a little bit about some of the queer performance art that you talk about in gothic queer culture? Like M. Lamar and Zachary Drucker. Castles. And Castles. And I also write about Ron Athey. Yes. The chapters of the book are, are all focused around a different gothic trope or metaphor. So I have haunting, live burial, and crypts. I have a a chapter on monstrosity and a chapter on sadomasochism. And in that chapter where I talk about BDSM practices, I, I write about three different contemporary performance artists. One is M. Lamar. He's based in the New York area. He does this amazing work around um, multiple genres. So he's a musician, mm-hmm. a singer, a composer. Uh, he does films. He does photography and installations. So right there, if we think about that as a sort of Frankensteinian monstrosity. Oh, right? yes. Being interdisciplinary <laughs> yeah. is very queer. And the way that I talk about his work is that he does not shy away from uncomfortable histories of around race um, in the United States and the way that racial histories intersect to um, shape assumptions about black masculinity and sexualities today. Yeah, he has, and you talk about it in the book, some of the best, most potent critiques of Maplethorpe. Yes. That... I've ever seen. And I'm a Maplethorpe fan. Somebody who was able to incorporate queerness and BDSM into high art, but often at the expense of black bodies. Yeah. So one of his most famous series of photographs is contained in the Black Book. Mm. And it is uh, a lot of erotic photos of black men and people have criticized that as a fetishizing and uh, of black men uh, without portraying them as full humans right that often one of his most famous photos um, is a man in a 
gray polyester suit right. uh, with his dick hanging out, but his head is cut off. Right. right. So in that way that, you know, women in popular culture are very familiar with the fragmentation of bodies in order to, you know, objectify and dehumanize. Yeah, that's some feminism 101 yeah. shit <laughs> of like, we're mutilated by having our heads cut off and ads and or just like being reduced to body parts right which i mean that mutilation and being reduced to an object certainly has potential to be reclaimed if you are right. interested right. in that in a horror from a horror perspective i can remember in feminism 101 classes in college being told like it's bad mm -hmm. it is bad that women are cut up in advertising and i'm like i get it violence against women definitely bad let's critique it and also to your thesis of like well what if we have experienced that what if we've experienced the trauma of seeing our bodies cut up in representations in the media all around us and then we want to play with that yeah in our work right please cut me up but it all depends on who is in charge who has the power who's got the who's making the, the call yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and who decides who who decides that i'm going to get cut up yeah right? is it me mm. or is it you or have i given you the permission to do it or mm. is it just something outside of my control right that it all depends on the power so m lamar has a series called Maplethorpe's Whip. And you people may remember that famously Maplethorpe came under scrutiny um, during the culture wars of the 90s mm. for some of his erotic photographs. And he has a very famous one of himself with the, the handle end of a whip inserted into his anus. And that was something that people were shocked by. And so Maplethorpe has become associated with whips you know, in that way. Yeah. So Maplethorpe's Whip series is, you know... It's a I, great picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it is right? amazing. I mean, yeah. I saw it at the... I mean, I'd, I've seen that... I've seen it reproduced many times, but I actually saw it at the Guggenheim earlier this year, along with a lot of his other very kinky, queer imagery. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can say about, about Maplethorpe, but being able to go to the Guggenheim and see mm. all of that leather imagery, some of which is hardcore yeah. porn, is fun. Yeah, on <laughs> the wall fun. of the Guggenheim. And yeah. it's really, I mean, I've talked about this before, but it is so funny to, I love, I don't have any training in art history or art analysis, but like going and seeing like placards, which I love to read when I go to museums and like seeing them try to explain <laughs> in high art yeah. language that just what you're seeing is a daddy boy scene. And like, <laughs> I'm all for using like a hundred words when five will do, but it is really funny to just be like, oh, so what you're saying is that this is a portrait of daddy boys. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, please go on. So M. Lamar, so let's it, talk. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So in his uh, Maplethorpe's Whip series, which is part video installation and part photography, he's, he has a penis guillotine, mm. right? And so he... Uh, Every, everybody walks, needs one right yeah. he walks around as in the the role of an overseer on a cotton plantation mm. there is a series of 
white men who seem to be picking the cotton, subservient to him as the overseer, but then he walks up the penis guillotine and sticks a whip through the hole Mm. and has one of the subservient men pull the rope to cut the penis whip off and it falls into a basket with the harvested cotton and it's all very complex but he's you know he does say that he's taking this idea of the fetishized black penis that Mablethorpe and other white folks have sort of put out there yeah. and reframing it and saying you is this what you want here here it is yeah. I'm going to show you a fetishized black penis it's this whip that then I'm going to cut off and and so there's no clear answers about his work but i think for um gallery audiences it's pretty uncomfortable yeah and i mean i've i've uh seen his music live and his music is extremely goth and dissonant and overpowering and meant to make people uncomfortable yeah or if you're goth make you feel soothed <laughs> <laughs> well i have to say as i mentioned in my book i'm goth at heart if not you know overtly and it still makes me uncomfortable it's long it's durational as they would say in the yeah. art world it's not it's amelodic it's not particularly um like you can't hum the tunes yeah yeah it's repetitive <laughs> yeah. and he does a lot of sort of like moving up and down to notes and, and sometimes never quite reaching the note yeah and I talk about that as all designed to make the audience uncomfortable and to really take them out of their assumed comfort zones like they're I guess or complacency take, take, take them out of their complacency take them out of their comfort zones so that their assumptions are become denaturalized so that they have to address them they have to think a little bit more about uh, maybe the kinds of assumptions they make about black bodies or black men um, or black queerness uh, black queerness and and the fact that he doesn't give you things that are easy to interpret or easy to understand or hum (laughs) Um, the fact that it's kind of not just uncomfortable in terms of content but in terms of like the sound of it the dissonance yeah um all of that I talk about as a sort of a power play and and an application of the way that this BDS, the BDSM practice in a theoretical sense can be used to uh, make a political intervention or at least minimally to draw attention to the structures that he encounters in his life. Whether or not we do anything with that is, I guess, up to the, the audience when we leave the space. Can you talk about the Zachary Drucker piece? Yeah, so the Zachary Drucker piece um, that I write about is a performance that I actually saw myself. And um, she lies out on a metal table that looks a lot like an autopsy table, something very medical. Yeah. um, With uh, bikini briefs on, sometimes heels, and a ball gag in her mouth. Um, and then the audience hears a disembodied voice, which is a pre-recorded voice of hers, that um, asks us to first um, close your eyes, breathe together, visualize peace and calm, put your hand on the person in front of you, and you, like sort of lulls us into a sense of calmness and security. And then slowly that voice 
changes the narrative to become aggressive in a way but really it sounds like it's an internalized monologue the way that um, people internalize beauty standards in a culture and Ah. and apply them to themselves right you are ugly Mm. you can't achieve anything um, you know you'll never be what you want to be but since the audience has been standing there you know internalizing the calm soothing voice suddenly it it shifts like the tone shifts and then it asks the audience to come up to the body on the table which is Zachary's and pick up tweezers and begin plucking the hairs out of her body wow and it's a really interesting experience to be in that room people in my experience we were very uncomfortable at first sort of giggling uh they weren't they were hesitant to pick up the tweezers but as time went on the voice says channel all of your you know self-hatred into the these hairs and pluck them out wow the bitch can take it and people got pretty enthusiastic there were lines behind the tweezers for people to take their turn doing the plucking and so what she's playing with there you know is I think the complexities of these narratives about gender and beauty aesthetics and the way that we all internalize them yeah Um, and also the fact that beauty is pain yeah that idea that concept alone right but also that we are all complicit in policing each other Mm. and Zachary Drucker is trans and she asks us to participate in you know inflicting pain upon a trans body for the sake of perpetuating a beauty standard and that is that a feminine person should be hairless right it slips very subtly and almost imperceptibly into this role that the audience takes on as kind of the perpetuators of pain. The um, sadists. The sadists. Cool. And then what about the Castles one? So, uh, yeah, so Castles has done a, a series of works that are based on the one that I write about, which I saw a couple of times, in which Castles trains does this hyper training where they control their caloric intake they train their body they build muscle within a certain amount of time and become very strong and toned and then in this piece they have a mound of clay in the middle of a dark room and the audience is either ushered in or put into place and the lights go out and it's it's pitch black you can't see anything and then you start to hear this sort of slapping heaving pounding noise and a photographer is also in the room and periodically takes a flash photograph of the mound of clay in the middle and when the room lights up with that flash the audience can suddenly see that castles is there beating up this piece of clay with their bare hands and feet what is interesting is that castles talks about this as a ghosted image on the retina oh So, you know, when you see a bright light from a dark space, you can continue to see it. It lingers. That's right. right. And so you only see castles in the middle of the room for a flash, for a second. Right. But you you continue to see castles burned into your own Especially when it returns to total darkness. Exactly. And um, so that's a, a really interesting phenomenon. 
But also there's this spectacle of violence in yeah. the middle of a space. And the audience is, is disempowered in a lot of ways. And audiences in a gallery space are usually quite empowered. Right. Comfortable, you know, you know, have access to this kind of art and understanding. And in this context, it is flipped, right? So it's hard to exit the space. So the audience is disempowered in this space, which is a reframing of the audience's role in the traditional gallery space. When the lights go off, it's very difficult to exit the room and you don't have a sense of like where the audience area ends mm. and the spectacle of violence in the middle of the room begins. So, uh, so you, feel you kind could of stumble upon it. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And you could get fucking punched. You could. And Castle's... Um, is very intentionally making a commentary on the way that trans bodies are shaped by culture mm. and sh and impacted by violence and they say that when they are shaping the clay the clay is actually pushing back against them it's it's a painful experience right mm. clay is is this very hard object when you're when you're punching it yeah. it you know hits you back it doesn't have right? a lot it doesn't, of gift. doesn't get but it but castles in their strength does shape that clay into like a beautiful sculpture and um later after those live events castles has casted the clay into an actual permanent sculpture and has turned that into another performance piece with video component where um this heavy metallic structure that was shaped during the live piece is uh, carted around to locations of real world violence against trans folks mm. and it's making a kind of commentary on the the relationship with violence that trans people have are forced to have in our culture. And something that has been really interesting for me is to see this grow from the original live performance to uh, installation pieces in galleries and art museums and the emphasis that Castles puts on the audience reaction mm. in this piece. So in art museums often castles surrounds the clay remnant sculpture lines the walls with images of audiences mm. that have also been taken during the process of the piece and their their expressions are horrified yeah uncomfortable yeah and then there's also another component where you stand in the middle of an area and you just hear the ghostly sounds of the slapping and the kicking. And that combination, that sort of swirling, incoherent negotiation of violence and power is, you know, really impactful and for a lot of people, you know, very uncomfortable. And so for all three of these artists, I write about the way that they negotiate um, discomfort, mm. empowerment, consent, and um, the ways that those things kind of slip into each other and also uh, denaturalize the structures of power that we assume to be normal in our society, mm -hmm. but that also that are actually inflicting violence upon um marginalized folks what can i say except that is also fucking interesting to me and i really hope that 
people listening to this see this as a little bit of a taste of your book and go out and read the rest because it's all so thoughtful and thought-provoking and you also do a really good job of evoking a lot of very powerful imagery that I think helps to illustrate the sort of more abstract things that you are getting at. Well, thank you. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As the days get shorter and the nights get longer, my friends at The Pleasure Chest will be diving deeper into cosplay and even more BDSM than usual. Follow at Pleasure Chest Stores on Instagram and Twitter for up-to-the-minute info on their free weekly workshops on kink technique in New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago. The Pleasure Chest will be featuring some of their favorite kinky superstars and leather gear on their site and social media all month long. They're also offering 20% off their most popular kink features from October 25th till October 31st, only at PleasureChest.com. Pleasure Chest stores are stocked with costumes and accessories for Halloween. All stores will have candy out and hidden boupons around the store with delicious discounts on October 30th and 31st. Have a safe, creepy, happy Halloween from Wire People Into That and The Pleasure Chest. And now... On with the show. When I was reading this book, I was thinking about Safe Sex, my comic book, that I've been working on for almost two years. And as of today, issue one is coming out in two days. You know, Safe Sex is a dystopia. Mm -hmm. It's like not too distant future sci-fi. And it, it incorporates a lot of horror and there's a lot of body horror and when i i was on a queer horror panel at flamecon recently with an artist jen hickman who i've done a collaboration with and who is going to start drawing the comic um after issue five and they were referring to dystopia as institutional horror i love that yeah i loved it too i really it took my breath away because i was like oh they like put it so concisely like i always had a sense that i was writing a horror story but it doesn't it doesn't have like supernatural monsters it definitely has people behaving monstrously Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is about like the thing that we were talking about earlier about horizontal violence and Mm -hmm. like what we are willing to inflict on one another in order to feel safe ourselves. Yeah. But the monsters really the institutional structure. The right? mo- yeah. that's exactly right. The mo- the monster is the is the 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 people in power who create the infrastructures that then we are running through like rats or are trapped like rats like or we're the like uh crabs in the bucket yeah. trying to get 
out of the bucket, but all just like slipping back down. Right. And just to return for a second to the original Gothic novel, the, the castle of Otranto. Yeah. People. Well, for one thing, it established this Gothic trope, this metaphor of the victimized, disempowered young woman mm. being pursued through subterranean passages. Oh, yes. There but, are subterranean <laughs> passages in safe sex, by the way. And uh, what people say is that the horror of that of that book is not its supernatural elements. It's patriarchy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the pursuit through these subterranean passages, you know, you could read them as psychoanalytic, but you could also read them like as, you know, your subconscious or whatever. Uh-huh. But you can also read them as the, you know, bureaucracy, red tape, oh, the, yes. the being run like a rat through a maze, through what the true horror is. It's the structures that you're trapped in. Bureaucracy and red tape, also <laughs> a major part of what is scary in safe sex. You haven't yeah. read it and no. you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> yeah. Wait, should we take a second and talk about Castle of Otranto is about this young couple is going to be married and then a fucking helmet falls on the dude. A giant helmet. A giant helmet falls on the dude and then his de- and kills him. And then in the beginning of the story, it's no spoilers. <laughs> and 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 then his dad makes it all about him and is freaking out that this is like a sign that he's going to be cursed. It's a little Shakespearean, I guess. And his his response to the trauma of his son dying is that he decides he's going to marry the woman that his son was going to marry. Yes. And she's like, first of all, my fiance just died. Right. Second of all, you're going to be my dad. Yep. Third of all, fuck you. Right. I'm going to try to escape from you through these catacombs. Yeah. And he becomes very violent and wants to lock her up and she escapes she runs through the catacombs in the bottom of underneath the castle and he chases her down there in the dark and and there's like fucking ghosts and shit yeah Yeah. ancestral ghosts Um, oh yes yeah and he is married already um but his wife won't is unable to produce a male heir that was his only hope and he was going to be able to maintain a hold on his property and his title through that union and so his only answer to that union to to solving the the loss of that union is to himself take the place of the son and marry (sighs) yeah so um it it is really that it's his desperation to maintain his power his patriarchal power through the structures that exist in terms of inheritance and property ownership it's not to mention yeah like imperialist uh, yeah power as well because right. he's like got a castle and shit yeah <laughs> exactly uh yeah yeah exactly so institutional horror the idea mm. that like it's the structures of power are the monsters yeah and the people who have the most power within those structures are the villains and or their henchmen who are who they've activated to go do the work of maintaining that order yeah and they the will displace uh, our attention 
on to the most marginalized people in that world and say, no, it's them. They're the monsters. Yep. So we all look over there yep. and uh, focus our attention on the, the, the people who have the least power. And we miss the point that it is the structure itself and the people who perpetuate it that are the ones that we should be worried about. That's also real life. Yeah. <laughs> what you're describing. It's real life. Well... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think I maybe made a piece of gothic queer culture, Laura. <laughs> I really hope I, I hope I hope you like it. I can't wait to read it. And I will say about the genre itself. Oh yes, right? comic that books. Comic books. You were saying earlier that comic books have a very particular ability to get at certain kinds of human experience yeah. in ways that traditional prose can't. That there are multiple modes of access to telling a story, that yeah. it's visual, it's contained in how how you do the order of the cells. That yeah, how it's how it's paced. Exactly. Yeah. The and there's there's also language involved, but yeah. it's different than like a, a traditional prose novel. Well it's always the the the, the prose is always interacting mm -hmm. with both the illustration but also the sequencing of the panels yeah. the, the sequential mm -hmm. art and you know correct me if i'm wrong but the sequencing of the panels you don't have to make it linear right That's so right. <laughs> the fact oh, yeah. that it's contained it's, out, it's outside of time yeah, yeah and contained into the these smaller units mean that those units can be shifted and juggled in ways that queer time um yes laura yes and so what's potentially gothic about that um is tell me <laughs> is the way and also what's potentially gothic about that is that it uses non-normative approaches to talk about human experiences. So yes. where gothic novels used the supernatural as metaphors to talk about human experiences, comic books can use all sorts of ways to get at experience that is maybe each particular element isn't totally queer outside of the norm. When you put them all together, you have this hybrid form that is particularly monstrous and queer. And yes. Um, since yours is dealing with these institutional horrors, it also is about insidious trauma. It's it about is, well, it is right? very much about microaggressions as death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. So the nature of trauma and the nature of insidious trauma is a heightened version of that is that it's very difficult to talk about. It's not acknowledged in ways that are useful to the people who have experienced the trauma themselves. Yeah. There's all of this, people call it like gaps in traumatic experience, temporal fragmentation that oh happens. Oh my God, like the gaps between the panels yes. in a comic yes, book. Yes, exactly. And the temporal fragmentation of the panels and the way that they're, they're separated yes. from each other. And so... I talk about the way that gothicism in its slipperiness, in its um, shadowiness, in the way that, you know, did I just see a ghost mm. in the corner of my eye? Or like, could that be explained away? That mirrors the experience of microaggression. Was, was that 
a problem? Like, did somebody just say something to me that I should be a, like, was that right? That kind of feeling when, uh, and then you feel haunted later by what could I have said in response? Or like, was that actually something I should be? Am I being too sensitive? Exactly. And so the Gothic has a particular, um, is particularly useful at sort of getting at that experience. And I think that the genre of comic books also is a way of getting at that experience. Oh man, you made my fucking day. (laughs) Thank you for that. For listeners of this podcast, I'm going to give a little tease of an element of body horror that appears in safe sex in issue four. So you're going to have to wait a few months to find out exactly in what context. But there are themes in safe sex of the difference between what we've talked about in terms of BDSM today, torture and pain that you welcome and uh, and ask for Mm -hmm. and have control over versus torture and pain that you have no control over and didn't ask for. And the particular, the particularly traumatic experience of experiencing unconsensual pain when you are somebody who eroticizes consensual Mm, pain and torture. So a kinky queer character is tortured unconsensually. And one of the ways that he is tortured unconsensually is with sounds. And so Laura and I were hanging out recently and uh, she was talking about this grant that she got to do some research for her next book, which I hope that you'll share with us. And uh, and I was like, oh, uh, will you make sure when you're doing this re- research, send me any pictures you find of <laughs> of any uh, uh, archived sounding torture? Uh, um, I came through on you that. You sure did. <laughs> you did. It was one of the best, one of the truly <laughs> most beautiful texts I've ever received. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit about the medical fetish horror research that you have been doing this year yeah so for my next book project which is in its early research stages i'm hoping to write a book that in which each chapter is a close reading of um, a lesser known or unknown medical object or practice and so i want to find medical objects or practices from the late 1800s to mid 1900s. So I'm looking at approximately 1865 to 1950. Mm -hmm. And I want to locate lesser known medical objects and practices from that era that were used to um, violently or materially shape gender and sexual non-conforming folks for the sake of medicine like they were clay yeah and then i want to trace the way that that medical practice has been integrated into our assumptions of normative gender and sexuality today and then look at the way that queer folks have taken that legacy and turned it into creative creative outlets so art literature performance and that kind of thing i love that your work is not only about examining the trauma but also examining the ways that we that queers have taken that trauma back and used it to make culture i mean i guess that is the whole point like you can't study one without the other but i think that that is i think that that's because of your approach i think that plenty of people just yeah 
portray the trauma or study the trauma, but then don't sort of bring in that other element of how we fight the power and take the power back. Yeah, I mean, we've we have enough books about medicine and uh, I don't want to recenter the traumatizing force. I want to center the ways that queer folks have inherited this legacy. Mm. Like it's like an intergenerational trauma in yeah. a queer yeah. kinship intergenerational way. Um, and what are we doing with that? Yeah. Um, but simultaneously drawing our attention to the things that we assume to be naturalized or normal. So many people go through life thinking, well, if it's science or medicine, that's objective truth. We shouldn't question that. That's just where we start with with a, a shared assumption that this is just reality. Yeah. And I think that needs to be questioned and made visible that science and medicine was produced by humans who are, you know, integrating their own assumptions of their time and place into the medical practice. And yeah, and it's shaped by the people who are the most powerful. Right. And it's usually performed on the people who are the least powerful. Right. And that shouldn't be erased, right? Because as we know from epigenetic research like the the legacies of that kind of material trauma on bodies has lingering effects past that generation yeah most people would say you know that that has to be through a legacy of reproduction and i want to queer that narrative as well thank you for that (laughs) yeah so um one thing that i i can speak to at this stage is that the the research that i did recently was uh, based on a particular book that i found in a medical archive on testicular transplantation oh yes this physician was experimenting with testicular transplantation for the purposes of virility so for people who had access to this so mostly old rich white men if they felt like they were having problems with virility they could meaning they were having problems getting it up getting up yeah the, they could um and like maybe they felt weak or feminized like oh, they're yes. in addition to that biological component there's the the gender overlay of, of course you know what we associate with that and so they did experimentation with uh, transplanting goat testicles onto men to see if it made them stronger and more did masculine. Well, uh, they say it did. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but again, that science, people look for their assumptions to be confirmed through their experimentation. And, you know, did this particular doctor do enough replication of those experiments for them to be valid? you know that's up for debate so then you're like creating this frankenstein hybrid mm-hmm, absolutely interspecies yeah creature but i will say i'm less interested in the old white men who had you know og viagra right uh and more interested in the uh they also were proposing using this this medical practice on to cure the the pathologies of homosexuality bisexuality and what they called at that time hermaphrodism Mm. so those were folks who likely were non-consenting 
and were it so this is like conversion therapy and that is uh the disempowered population that i want to look at in terms of the effects of these kinds of medical practices you know in my research it was infused in in this time period the medical literature is infused with eugenics and when i talk to folks today who are very aware of lots of issues around race class gender sexuality oppression and activism eugenics is not as well known Mm. and so eugenics is the practice that was um part of mainstream medical uh science yeah that where people were trying to do um, breeding and also sterilization in order to create a stronger quote-unquote better and more powerful more perfect race and so um, the implications of that are far-reaching and uh, really devastating and the fact that that has dropped out of our um, popular knowledge to a large degree is a real problem i saw a lecture about the origins of dating not not dating apps but of sort of like like dating services uh being in uh eugenics which makes sense when you think about it it does yeah and the origin of you know popular birth control and um all sorts of things so that i mean that's just an example of how something as um, mainstream as eugenics once was now being a kind of lesser known practice or at least the individual procedures that happened that were under the guise of eugenics many people don't know about yet it has deeply influenced the way we perceive um, gender and sexuality but also race and class and ability today And so that kind of connection is is an important one to make, but also to not stop there. Mm. I think it's important to look at the legacy of those practices and not focus on the people who were once in power Mm. doing that, Ah. but to look at the folks who have inherited the legacy and are turning it into a culture that is is beautiful and powerful and, um, and pushing back against those normative assumptions. Fuck yes. Is there anything else that you want to say? Uh, I just, well, I want to say that I do have a book release uh, party coming up yes. at Blue Stockings, um, November 23rd. Cool. And, um, you know, it's open to the public. It's free. I'll be talking a little bit about uh, the stuff that I cover in the book. And, you know, I would love to meet folks. And Well, I'll be there. All right. Laura, thank you so much for writing this book and for talking about everything that we talked about today. Thank I you. I feel like I learned something new every time I talk to you. Well, I learned something new too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love I love these conversations. Awesome. Where can people find out more about your work on the internet? So you can purchase the book on Amazon on the publisher's website. And that is University of Nebraska Press, but you can just Google Gothic Queer Culture and it will come up. And are you on social media? I am. I am on Instagram. I'm Lala Westengard and Facebook as well. 
L. Westengard. So find me there. I will post about my upcoming events. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 